Welcome to the Herd is Calling podcast. We are really excited for our guest today, Rebecca Walker-Sands. Rebecca is a highly accomplished professor with a very large academic background, of which I'm only going to read some liner notes right now, just to <laughs> give our audience an appreciation of some of her background, which includes a Master of Science and PhD, the defining thread of which involves animal behavior. She has worked with sheep, wolves, chimps, finches, and voles. The primary focus is on environmental influences on what's considered genetics. Rebecca's current emphasis is on the development of gendered behaviors across species, including humans. She's taught at various locations in Oregon, Nevada, Idaho, Montana, and North Carolina since 1983 at the university level, and then arrived in Bend, Oregon at COCC in 1995. She was awarded the Lewis B. Corey Lifetime Achievement Award, which recognizes outstanding quality of service in higher education. She received the Faculty Achievement Award, which is considered the Oscar of teaching, <laughs> can only be awarded once in a lifetime. She was five times included in the Who's Who among America's teachers. The Judy Roberts Academic Achievement Award, an American Psychological Association Science Directorate's Dissertation Award, which is a very big deal as a doctoral candidate. She was awarded the Outstanding Faculty Award, Montana State University Billings. She was inducted into the Sigma Psi, a fraternity for research scientists. She was also a featured keynote speaker at the National Association for Therapeutic Schools and Programs for Development of Gendered Behavior. Wow. This is really just like less than 10% of everything I have here, but I just want to give people appreciation for the work you've done and we appreciate you. So welcome to our podcast. Yeah. Thank you for being here. This is a big deal. We're so happy that you are going to talk to us today. Well, I'm incredibly happy to be included as part of your herd. So <laughs> <laughs> right on. <laughs> she gets us. Yeah. yeah. Yes, we're, we're talking the same yeah. language. <laughs> Let's just dig right in. Can you tell us about your horse life these days, including like a snapshot of a typical horse day for you? Mm -hmm. Well, we could talk about the horse journey, which I'm sure we will at some point. But currently, I have a slightly anxious, wonderful American Quarter Horse gelding that I like to see as often as I can, which, because just being around him, I think makes us both release dopamine and endorphins and everything just feels better after being at the barn. We're not riding a lot yet. We're doing a lot of groundwork and just grooming, get to know each other, let him get to know the the in and outs of the barn. So knowing what predictability is in his life, which I think has been missing. And there's been a lot of chaos in my life too. So just having that, that silence and, and camaraderie, which I have learned through my work with our journey through horses with Victoria and Josh, that that's all right that there doesn't have to be high expectations of we're going to do Western dressage and I'm going to nail this posting trot that we have time 
and building that foundation and just feeling comfortable with each other is important. Yeah. Perfect. Beautiful. Yeah. Good. And I've really seen that the last couple times that I've seen you at the barn with Hap. There's an affinity being built there that is really true because he is nervous. But every time I see you, because he's in a new place and it's Mm -hmm. new, new circumstances, new environment, new protocol, new humans, all the things. But every time I see you in him, he does come down a notch. He is starting to, I can tell, figure out that he's okay. And that's really nice to see happen. It's nice to see it unfold. Why were you first drawn to horses? You know, I've I've been thinking about this. I'm, I can't remember not being drawn to horses. You know, when I, ever since I could speak, horses were one of the first things in my vocabulary. And I've, I've been told by my parents that once I stopped talk, started talking, I didn't stop, which I guess is why I'm in academics and I teach. But my, my very first toy that I can even remember, and I can remember quite a ways back, I think part of its constructed memory, of course, was a little white plastic horse my parents were both came from ranching families, but my dad and his father had a big falling out because of my mom. My mom didn't want to live with them on the ranch, so they moved off the ranch. And even though my dad still worked there and we were at the ranch often, things were really tough and really tight. So I had this one little plastic horse and that horse, his name was Pokemon. I don't know, Pokemon. Pokerman, I'm sorry. I have no idea where I got that name because, you know, a three-year-old naming a horse Pokerman. My cousins made all kinds of fun of him, but I defended him continuously. My sister gave him away because she said that the gypsies left me and they were going to come take me and I didn't need my toys. So I did a gorilla reconnaissance and snuck on the porch of the kid that she gave it to. It was an enclosed porch and broke into their house while they were at church and got my horse back. (laughs) Okay. That was at four. I do remember that at four. Never told anybody, but I got my horse back. So yeah, the parents didn't know about my, you know, espionage. (laughs) So we, we were at the ranch often because my dad was there. I had these dreams of being on a horse galloping through the chickens and, but every time I got to ride a horse, it was with somebody leading them. So that was like, hmm. We visited my cousins and I got to ride her horses because she was a horse trainer. So we had friends with horses. When I went to my mother's family, I got to ride horses. So there were horses around. I think I've we've talked about this. I always carried a rope with me just in case there was a stray horse that I needed to bring home, put in our basement or something after we got more affluent. But then finally, my parents bought an old homestead and I got my own horse. And then we were, from day one, we were riding on the Pacific Crest Trail and because we lived very close to it. And it was horses every day. Wow. Until, you know, you get married and you go to school and or you go to school and you get married and you move away. And even though you try to keep horses in your life, that just doesn't work very well. Until finally, I got back together with with Victoria through our friend, Laura. 
mm-hmm. and started a workshop. And after that, it was like, going to get a horse again. And here yeah. we are. That was a really cool time to meet you. I remember when you came to the workshop, I hadn't seen you since I had gone to Mm -hmm. COCC, Central Oregon Community College, and taken your classes, which had been, it had been at least 15 years, probably longer. I remember coming up to you at the workshop, like after it was like, I think we had done the evening meet and greet Mm -hmm. the night before the workshop Mm -hmm. was supposed to start. And I came up to you and was like, kind of tapped you on the shoulder and said, Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, I don't want to be weird or anything, but <laughs> I know you. I was one of your students and I just used to hang on your every word. I loved your classes. I took every class you offered. I took summer psychology classes. You did. Just mm-hmm. so that I could keep you in my head. So, and then you started writing after that workshop. You were taking less and you had this dream from there on out to have a horse of your own again, and you manifested that. So that's pretty cool. <sighs> Through ups and downs, but mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What a, what a life-changing event though that was. I mean, the workshop was fabulous. A lot of, a lot of emotions in mm-hmm. that, which you wouldn't think, I mean, given what the context was. I also would like to comment on that particular workshop, which is where Josh was reintroduced and did a guided meditation, which was the coolest thing ever. <laughs> I mean, not I mean, on a par with being on the horses, okay? <laughs> but I had never, never done meditation, didn't think I could do meditation, and it was fabulous. It was like, oh, this is what it's all about. That's so cool. So thank you to both of you. <laughs> no, that's really neat. And just because you've told me the story before, can you share what your first thought was when you heard we were going to be doing a meditation? Okay. <laughs> so I rolled my <laughs> eyes. <laughs> this, was, this was before I had looked into all of the benefits. Well, actually, it's been since that workshop that I have been more tuned in to the physiological work. There is an individual named Michael Posner, who is emeritus from U of O. I also was fortunate to work with U of O when they were in Oregon. So for 15 years, I taught for U of O when they had their programs here in Central Oregon. And Michael Posner started doing work on cerebral cortex rewiring and uh, growth regeneration of cells as a result of mindfulness and meditation training. And that had gotten my attention. But prior to that, it was Mm -hmm. like, yeah, here we go, whatever this is, Mm because it just wasn't in my arena. But yeah, yeah. But you but you felt it when I mean, that was so cool, too. I, I love that you, you, yeah, initially sort of rolled your eyes and were like, Oh, my God, what did (laughs) I sign up for here this weekend? Um, (laughs) Which I totally get, by the way, Mm -hmm. that makes I been in that situation myself, but was so cool. And to your credit, you sat, you did the meditation and you went in it whole ass for lack of a better word. You were like, all right, I'm going to do it. And you did it and you actually got some benefit out of it. So that, that's so cool, I think. Absolutely. And it's, been a tool that I've used since then, especially because I have a tendency to dissociate, which is an interesting thing uh, in times of stress. And so 
through work with Laura Forrest on EMDR, but also the breathing techniques that we've talked about in the horse journey workshops and the focus with meditation on heartbeat and being connected to your body. Hmm. To say that it helps ground me seems like an understatement. It's, hmm. It really is a fabulous technique, which I think has helped immensely over the events of the last year, especially. Yeah. Do you care to share any of the events of the last year? Like, I just want you to share as little or as much or as, or none at all of at this point, because we can do another podcast later. Mm -hmm. Do you want to give us any context on what's, what's happened in the last year for you and your journey? A year and a half ago or so I retired thinking that I, well, I, semi-retired. I still teach because horses are expensive. <laughs> I semi-retired because I thought now I'll have more time. I can work with horses. And with the help of Victoria, got this fabulously beautiful horse, but unfortunately we didn't click as human beings. And so he went on to greener pastures. I don't mean he died. He went on to somebody who takes care of him and can deal with him and loves him as her big dog. And I found another fabulous horse who was settling in quite well. And then we discovered he suffered from wobbles, which is a terminal condition. It's, we probably don't need the technical term, but it has to do with the cervical, the neck vertebrae and compression on the spinal cord. Mm. So he had to be put down, which was horrifying. And at the same time that that happened, my mom, who I'd been taking care of for three and a half years after my father had passed away, and really we had been very involved for at least the last 15 with medical issues and a lot of travel till I moved her to be close. But at the same time that beloved Harley was symptomatic my mother went into hospice and then she died two days before he did so one of my i don't know if it was an appropriate coping mechanism but the monday after that week i bought another horse and that's how <laughs> that's how happy harry houdini showed up for better or worse it's like I, I can't can't live with this i can't go through this without having a horse in my life and this one is here and he looks like he needs me and I need him and that was it. Now here he is. Wow. There you go. What Fortunately he's he's healthy. That's the good news. He's healthy. <laughs> yeah, very healthy. But right. it's been it's been a year. A lot of struggle, a lot of epiphanies. Sorrow. Sorrow. Yeah. Grief. 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 How are you finding your way through? Is it I think what, two of the things that I have to allow myself to do is forgive myself because I have, I have lost my organization, it seems like. <laughs> I have let a lot of things just kind of fall. The things mm -hmm. that are, you know, things like texting and emails. And I got through all my classes. I had fabulous students, but like house organization things like that. But I think part of that is prioritizing. How important is it? Is anybody going to die? I don't think so. <laughs> so self-forgiveness 
and realizing that repair takes time. That's a lot, Rebecca. Yeah. It's interesting. Your horse's name was Harley. We we also lost a Harley this year. There was a couple of other instances of people losing horses this year. So there was a theme of grief happening. It's not a subject that I particularly love exploring, but when you're faced with it, it gives you a chance to look at it. And there, there's a lot there to cultivate and understand. Your case was really shocking. Like when we when I first heard about it, I just, I couldn't believe it. I almost dropped what I was holding. It was just, no, nobody could believe it. Your, your horse was young and healthy. You guys were really beautiful partners and it's just incredibly sad. And I'm still so sorry that that happened. There's just really nothing else I can say. Yeah. And for you to lose your Harley, it's, if people aren't horse people, it's so hard to understand that. I mean, if you haven't had a horse in your life, they are just, they are their own entities in how incredibly vital they are to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can lose a lot of things, but when you lose that special horse, it's, that's, that's really different, which, you know, you understand it's, it's its own kind of grief and loss. Yeah, we, I, I know. I get I, it. You no, know, you know, too many times. You know? Well, that's one of the things, you know, if you've spent your whole life working with horses, you're going to experience losing them, you know, more than a couple times. And every time it's always shocking, the pain and, mm. and the feeling of like, there's a huge, like, there's just this empty void because they do take up so much space, mm-hmm. especially if you love them and you're part of their lives and they're part of your lives. It's, I'm still sort of working that out. I haven't fully finished processing yeah me neither losing harley who mm-hmm. our harley who was had been in our life for years i had had him longer than my kids and you know mm-hmm. any anything else in my life really besides like my mom and my brother so it's tough and i'm still parsing out what what the lessons are in terms of being able to articulate them one thing i'm just keep coming back to is just love like mm-hmm. It's, it's just this, I just keep thinking of the beating heart, just like this, mm. that, that resonance that you just can't escape because they're so big. They're so energetic. Yeah. Their hearts are so huge and they, you know, it, it sounds trite, but, and cliche, but the bigger your heart and the more you give, the bigger mm. the hole it's going to leave. You know, when you don't, and then you have to find a way to mend the edges and that you can't replace them. You'll never replace that particular kind of love, but you can focus on another. You can give your attention to another. And, you know, it's the same with connections with people. Mm -hmm. You know, you'll never have that person walk in your life again, but there'll always still be that connection, the place that you can hold them in. Mm. Wow. Wow, beautifully said. Yeah, that's helpful, actually. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you for that. Because actually that something just kind of pinged in my brain. Mm-hmm. Well, I something I've been thinking about a lot, a lot lately. Yeah. It's been almost two months. Oh, all right. Well, maybe we'll take a deep breath. Yeah. <laughs> and move on to, let's see, what drew you to psychology? I'm embarrassed to say what drew me to psychology. This must be good. (laughs) (laughs) 
okay, well, now so you have to tell us. <laughs> yeah, when I first got into psychology, it was to study parapsychology. Really? Oh, I never yeah. heard that before. No, I don't okay. hear that often. Do tell. <laughs> That's fascinating. Well, you know, I had all these interesting, my adolescence, I had all these interesting experiences with a native friend of mine who was my mentor and the goddess that I just worshipped. She was older than me and we just really resonated on things. And so there were some interesting events that had happened with her and around her. So I wanted to study more about that. And then, you know, you get into science and you realize how non-replicable all that is. And when I saw my first neuron, it was like, Ooh. and then mm. realized that a whole field was comparative psychology, which is animal behavior, right? Studying animal behavior. Mm. And that fit perfectly because the non-humans in my life were horses and dogs, right? Those are the most important things in the world. When I was a kid, because I didn't have my own horse, when I was little, I made my dog my horse. Poor dog. <laughs> I used to have him do jumps and pretend he was <laughs> pulling wagons and all kinds of stuff. And he he was a good little guy. He just soldiered ahead. You know? He was a poodle because that's all my mother would let us have. But we never told him he was a poodle. So he wasn't, mm -hmm. you know, stuffy. <laughs> mm -hmm. But yeah, poor thing. So then when I realized that that was a potential major, and I took a class from natural biology class from a person, the person who studied wolves, God in the field with a small G. He had studied with Conrad Lorenz, who is only one of three animal behaviorists to have received the Nobel Prize. So wow. that was a huge deal. And he had studied with him. And it's like, oh, my gosh, I get to work with this guy who was really kind of a he was a problematic scientist, but an incredible scientist. So that's when I shifted into, into animal behavior. And he is the person who got me to the chimpanzee program, teaching sign language to chimps, because he knew the gardeners who were the research primaries personally, and took me down for a conference and introduced me to them. So they knew me personally when I put in my application. They had a two-year waiting list. Interestingly, the other thing that boosted me was not just my undergrad research that I'd done, but that I could build a fence. <laughs> Isn't that funny? The things that boost you above Rutgers folks and all of that, they're like, you, we'll take you. <laughs> I'll, I'll build a fence <laughs> so you never know. But then, of course, that was the focus that I had through the rest of my education moving me into the PhD with zoology, where I was continuing the work with the wolves, had moved over from the chimps and continued the work with the wolves, which is what I really wanted to do, until I found out about epigenetics, which is the idea that there are external influences on how our chromosomes actually express. And that's when I flipped over to developmental psychobiology, mm -hmm. because that's mm -hmm. That's the way of the world. I mean, you know, it's, I hate to say truth with a capital T, but it was a more accurate description of how behavior unfolds than the idea that it's just genes. And that's what I was studying in biology. Everybody was doing what's known as ethology, which is the evolution of behavior, strictly looking at genes. But if I look back at all the research I've been doing, it was all of the research basically was looking at how to modify what we call instinctive behavior. So that's how I got to development and psych. Wow. What a journey. 
there was one other little piece I was going to add when I was in Montana and biology in Montana. One of my colleagues was Dr. J. Kirkpatrick, who was the person to look at non-lethal predator control through chemicals. And so he was working with the horses on Assateague Island to control their population through, through subdural implants. So it's birth control in horses. Mm-hmm. And that was the model that they use for Depro-Provera. So oh, what they use for humans, right? Yeah. But he mm-hmm. was also looking at control of the buffalo population, et cetera. And he had asked me, this is one of my sad things. He had asked me if I wanted to go to North Carolina and study the horses because he was looking at the physiology of population control. But what he wanted to know, and he and I talked about, is what happens to herd dynamics when the females always look pregnant. Because that's that's what the birth control does. It tells your body you're pregnant and you stop ovulating. But if mm-hmm. you think about that and estrus drives herd dynamics, what does that do? You know, wow. to, oh, it's so love to have done that. Did you ever hear of any research on that? Like no. I, I had never heard anybody ask that or, or have no. heard any information about that. No, I haven't looked at that. And, and Kurt, Kirkpatrick went to, he left academics and went to work for the National um, Humane Society because they were using his tactics to implement uh, non-lethal predator control, of course, across the country and the buffalo, et cetera. And I think he's passed away now. Hmm. But wouldn't that be fascinating? I wonder if we could still do that. It would be a cool study. I would imagine it's got to change the dynamic. I would think so. Operate, right? Yeah. I would think so. Because mm-hmm. you know they're going to smell different. Right. Because mm-hmm. humans, I just read a paper today about how humans smell differently when when females are ovulating and not ovulating mm-hmm. and changes testosterone production in males. Hmm. Wow. Which can also influence sperm production, which is so cool. But we kind of digress there. <laughs> fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating, though, isn't fascinating. it? Fascinating, yeah. It's fascinating. This might be a dumb question, but did you learn anything from your work with, you know, wolves, voles, chimps? I know there's some others in there. Was there. Did you learn anything that has informed you about horse behavior? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Of course, having read everything there was about horses that I could find from the time I was little, one of the gifts my parents gave us was a library card as soon as we started school. So we lived at the library. There are some there are some generalities across species, but when we look at, especially when we look at horse behavior, and we've talked about this over the years, there are so many fascinating commonalities in horse behavior and humans, also pack behavior and dogs, but different in that horses horses have a more of a matrilineal or hmm. dynamic, right? People, which they never get right in Hollywood, right. That, that the primary role of the stallion is to protect and keep people together, horses keep the herd together, but it's the female and old mare that leads, right? But the fact that, or the evidence, we have to be careful about saying facts because we get new information all the time, right? It's like, is it a high probability of being accurate? High probability 
that horses have shown brain organization similar to humans with lateralization of positive and negative emotions in their cerebral hemispheres that's indicated by ear position, which is so interesting because in our facial expression, we reflect that too, with the left hemisphere being associated with positive emotion and the right hemisphere being associated with negative emotion. And so it's been by looking at the facial expression of horses in their reactions to people's faces, because as you know, they may recognize angry faces or happy faces or you know blank faces. They know that and they remember them for a long time that we have much in common with the way their herd dynamics work, the way we work. Much of what humans do, and this goes to the polyvagal theory of stress response that we've been discussing, that there's hierarchies, and definitely in horses, which has been a big topic for us lately in terms of facial expression, because as in many species, horses don't want to inflict bodily damage. You know, that's why in primates, non-human primates, they yawn just to show those canines. It's like, do you see these babies? I don't want to bite you because there's no EMTs out here, right? And lions shake their great big dark manes and say, look at how great my hair is. Stay away from me. Yo, babies, take a look. Aren't I pretty? But guys, stay away from me, right? They roar, see the teeth. But in horses, they don't want to fight with each other. They flick an ear. They roll an eye. And that's that shows high evolution of the vagal system, actually, that allows you to engage and disengage in the environment in a very low energy method that will coordinate our our herd dynamics, if you will. And people do this all the time, right? Especially if you can raise one eyebrow. I'm not good at that. I have a daughter that can raise one. I want that. <laughs> But then I, I can't wink with both eyes either, my facial muscles. But you can raise your eyebrows. You can frown. you know, And that tells people a lot without you having to burn calories or hurt each other. And horses are so tuned into that. We can learn so much from them about how we interact with each other, but also how to interact with them by just paying attention to those cues, which we have been discussing lately in our our class. Yeah, our cohort. Yes. What is yes, what is that ear doing? Is it looking at is that showing that they're looking at me or is it showing me they're annoyed, they're concerned? Mm. What's their mouth doing? Because mm-hmm. that's very important too. Yeah. By the time the tail gets involved, things are getting serious. <sighs> don't you think? Right. Right. So if you're going beyond the facial expression, there's uh oh. <laughs> you know, it's like somebody crossing their arms. Okay. Something's something else is it's escalating. Right. So yes, definitely have learned a lot. And um, the other thing about most of the work that I've done, especially chimpanzees, wolves, and then the work with the horses, is that so much of what goes on is nonverbal. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, we have vocalizations that we use, but they're not the most common, you know, facial expressions really drive everything. If you think about it. There are words that can mean literally the same thing, but be very different depending on the facial expression, Hmm. right? So if I say, gee, I'm so glad to see you. (laughs) You That's very different than, gee, I'm so glad to see you. The eyebrows go up, right? 
Yeah, right. very different. And in chimpanzees, so much of theirs is gestural too, just like horses. My favorite being reaching out, because if you reach out to touch hands, that means I'm sorry. Let's connect. Mm. We do that a lot oh, in my man. house. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> Please. Man. So all, all of that, I think that's, that's probably one of the biggest take-home lessons across. Holy smokes. Wow, that's powerful. Yeah, we talk so much about equine body language and communication and connecting with horses, looking at them at, at a cultural level and trying to relate to them. And when, when you're talking about like that being a more evolved state, like a vagal state, um, mm-hmm. that was really interesting too. Now, do you mean from the predator to, you know, I guess technically they're considered prey animals? They are. Is that what you mean? Or is that separate? Like do our predators have evolved in that way too? Or well, it's, it's no, it's it's mostly it's beyond. I mean, there's pr- certainly predators because there's nonverbal communication between predator and prey, right? Like um, mm. prey animals know that when a wolf drops their head, that they're on the hunt, mm-hmm. right? When mm-hmm. they drop their head, then the fur on the back of their neck is more apparent. Right. And so in the Arctic, for example, caribou will just sit and look at a wolf. They won't move if a wolf is just trotting through because they're clearly not interested. Mm -hmm. But if they drop their head, then everybody leaves. That was Hmm. something David Meech, who's one of the gods, small G, uh, in the wolf world. (laughs) Got to meet him. I'm such a fangirl, too. But he had one of those those fur lined parkas. And he was studying wolves, but he was going to get want to walk through the caribou. But he flipped that up, and they scattered. They were he about got run over, because now it was eyes surrounded by fur. Mm. So there is that component, and the prey animals like stotting behavior. You know when prey deer jump, and mm. they flash their tail. Mm-hmm. The argument is that part of that is to show the predator, I've seen you. I'm going to outrun you. You know, in the short term. So your sneakiness is not going to work. So there is that level. But Mm -hmm. also the polyvagal theory, which is, I was so happy when I discovered that many years ago, but now it poor just finally is getting it out there that people are talking about the stress response. Any social group tends to have this, right? So dogs tend to have it. Cats have it, but not near, not domestic cats because domestic cats evolved from solitary animals. We picked them out of solitary, so they don't have the facial expressions that that horses or dogs have. So I'm not quite sure they they have they have a myelinated vagal system, so they've got the basis of it, but they don't have, as far as I understand, they don't have the same connection in terms of subtlety in the response so so it's mostly inter intra or intra intra group communication but it can be across species as well clearly one of those that's so fascinating that you can tell is if you raise your eyebrows right if you raise your eyebrows your dog will wag their tail right horses will look at you your cat's like whatever (laughs) you drop your eyebrows and your dog will roll over and pee or do submissive stuff or bite you. You Mm. stare at a chimp 
right? You stare at your dog or you stare at a chimp, you stare at a horse with the eyebrows flat and they'll start becoming anxious or aggressive. Mm -hmm. So, you know, across species, there are these facial expressions and Charles Darwin talked about that you know, 150 years ago with his book, Facial Expression in, in Man and Animals, which oh. should have been in humans and non-human animals because we're all animals. Right. But anyway, so yeah, there was a recognition of that. Wow. Is that wow. fascinating? It's it really fascinating. Yeah. I love how you say non-human animals too. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Cause we are, we're not, well, most days I'm not a vegetable or a mineral. <laughs> Some days, <laughs> although let's, let's not disrespect plants. We are finding out more and more about their complexity right. and how they integrate behavior. So I really, really try hard not to be a speciesist. Nice. Good job. <laughs> I made up that word. I don't know if it's a real word. I'm probably doing violence to the English language, but <laughs> can't be a speciesist. Yeah. That's pretty good. What what about then the co-regulation aspect that we were discussing in the polyvagal theory? Like mm -hmm. it seems like that is a key component to horse human interaction. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But Do you have any, it's, any thoughts on that? Co-regulation isn't just between horses and humans. It's with every social interaction, right? Mm -hmm. And that there are things that you can do that we've talked about. Part of that is to synchronize breathing, to synchronize footsteps. All of that helps link up your energy, your emotions, helps you calm and focus on, on other, other things rather than being geared up. Right, mm. so that you can you can decompress. So all of that mm. is important, and you know it's got to change the way we smell, because your sweat uh -huh. reflects what your biochemistry is, right? So one of the big things horses do, well, dogs do when they're just they're submissive is they urinate, right? Horses, and that's a that's an olfactory signal that says, "Look, you've won." Mm. Okay, uh, humans do that too if you're really nervously engaged you know mm -hmm. if the once the once the vagal system it's actually the ventral vagal system shuts down and the sympathetic nervous system kicks up in in Siegel and Tina Pay Bryson's books they talk about how you flip your lid and now you're just emotional and reactive mm -hmm. so ventral vagal is when your cortex is working you flip it and then your limbic system is kicking in right humans mm -hmm. will pee their pants too right? mm -hmm. when you're really distressed or scared but horses defecate right mm -hmm. so there's got to be oh. all factory systems that come into that one of the other things i'm probably getting too far afield that we talked about too that when horses when horses poop and they do when they're engaged right that one one piece of research showed that for every pound of poop they drop they gain a length in speed which can be Whoa. that's life or death when a predator's chasing you exactly. right so you know you, you think about that's it, how it all ties together it's an olfactory cue you know look things are distressed we've got our facial signals things are escalating but we can bring that all back down right if if you can coordinate your your control right hmm. and the same thing happens once you flipped your lid and you're escalating that's going to cause everybody around you to escalate 
Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But if you can stay calm, then that makes everything stay calm, which is one of the lessons I've learned. This was part of my aha in teaching this last year. Can you say more about that? Like that, that aha? For the last year and a half since I retired, at the last, at the last year and a half, yeah. I've noticed that my classes have gotten progressively better. You know, and I was thinking, well, it's not, I mean, I always try to make my material relevant, right? There's always, always make it upgrade and try to find out ways to be, you know, engaging and all of that. But I thought, gosh, my students are so much better. They're, I have fabulous students. They're just, they're bright. They're, they're, everybody's performing better. And I thought, well, maybe it's because I'm more relaxed. You know, I don't have to worry about all of the crap that's going on and in terms of politics, I can just let that go. I don't have to worry about departmental issues, you know, even scheduling. It's like, yeah, whatever. You know, so maybe that's it. But my aha, my aha moment was that, especially this last year when I was transitioning from Dusty, right? Because Dusty was the horse that went off the rails for me. And it is me. I mean, when I see him now, now the last time I saw him, which was last week, when I walked out, when I got out of the car and Danielle was there, he whinnies and then he sees me and he lays his ears back. Interesting. Isn't that, isn't that nice? <laughs> <laughs> then you, you see all these people that said, yeah, we took this horse that was headed to the slaughter because he was so mean. And now look at him. He loves me. <laughs> well that wasn't me even though victoria worked you had herculean efforts to get us together you know you were even saying maybe this horse isn't right for you there's just there's a dynamic that we could get this together but you know it's just not for you and to realize that i think was part of that of what's the evolution of my attitude has been this last year that instead of being so anxious about what was going to happen and what could happen, just realize, you know, there are some things that just don't work out, mm -hmm. but knowing that what's possible and that there are some things you just don't want to force and wow. to be able to, to be resilient. So when you asked, there was a question that you were going to ask about what are the three things that you learned from horses right? The first one is respect, respect for what they have to offer and what their journeys are. Mm -hmm. Resilience, right? Which goes with perseverance and then also repair that when things go wrong, you can repair them. Mm -hmm. And you also have to understand when you can't do that. Mm -hmm. But how that has helped with my teaching is that I, I have become less hate to use the word, but draconian about my syllabus, etc. It's more <laughs> of a guideline, right? But equally applied, but recognizing that there are so many things that go on with people's lives, especially since the pandemic, right. and all of the things that have happened that makes you stop and realize that there are some things that are more important than others, that giving people respect and grace for where they are, and just not being, not being so harsh, 
Mm -hmm. You know, just, just co-regulation is a good word, right? Mm -hmm. Just being more relaxed and people mm -hmm. respond to that. And I think that's why they rise up to the standards. It's, it's like, instead of putting this high standard and having people, and I've had people tell me this, they were afraid to disappoint me. They mm -hmm. wanted to work hard because they didn't want to dis disappoint me, which is like, well, that's, that's good and not good. I'd rather have people buoyed up and want mm. to get there because they know they can. Now, I think there's a difference. Oh, and, yeah. And there's a difference in, so there's a difference in instruction, but also a difference in the way I am with my horses. I, I told you with Hap, I'm not really concerned because I know we'll get there. I don't know if we just do groundwork, which I dearly love, and he seems to be doing so much better at. And we even we even trotted, and he wasn't he wasn't anxious and distressed, right? I know that sounds ridiculous. <laughs> that not ridiculous. Right? No. You know, ridiculous. you you're concerned about trotting. Yeah, kind of was. Well, just, and if you're concerned, I feel like that shows the level of horse person you are and have become the fact that you are concerned about trotting the fact that you are are you have an awareness of what goes into that to do it correctly that what goes into that to do it balanced in a way that is actually helping your horse move in the way that you're asking them to move i think so many of us have the experience of starting with horses we just get put on the horse and we just ride on top of the horse mm -hmm. and the horse is almost even if we love the horse and we love the experience maybe just lack of experience we in that lack of experience we we haven't realized the responsibility of needing to you know attune with the horse and actually mm -hmm. help the horse do the thing that we're asking them to do which is difficult to pack a, a human at a trot. Like for example, just to use trotting is like, mm -hmm. I actually don't think it's a little thing. I think it's a big thing. I, and that's been an evolution in my thought process about it too, for sure. I mean, I've had to, that's something I've realized over the years. So I think it's a big deal. And I think it says a lot about the kind of hmm. horse person you are. So there's just so much in what you were just talking about. I was just like trying to be, I was just like having like, <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. So I don't even know where to begin to unpack any of that. Do you, did you have a thought? Yeah, that's a lot. I mean, I was thinking about the concept of leadership, which was part of, you know, leading a class is mm -hmm. certainly mm -hmm. a form of leadership, horsemanship, can be viewed through the concept of leadership. Her dynamics can be discussed mm -hmm. in terms of leadership. So that was one thought I had. If you're looking at leadership as service, which is the way I've been trying to look mm -hmm. at it in terms mm -hmm. of horses, but then of course that is the lens that probably likely all leadership should be looked at. That's mm -hmm. what you're doing with your students is you're like you said, co-regulating with your, your, it's a process that you're working together on. Yes. That is, that is such a key point that I hadn't really, hadn't really recognized. You know, I've always had felt that I had good classroom control, right? Part of that's being tall and loud. <laughs> that's why I got leads and plays when I was in school. But I think that the difference, and you've hit on this, that 
instead of having it be, I'm in control and we're going to do this, it's, we're going to do this together and look what we're going to find. Wow. We're going to discover this together. Aronson and Gonzalez worked on this. It was called the jigsaw puzzle classroom, the jigsaw classroom, where nobody had the whole answer. Everybody worked together to find it. So mm -hmm. you gave kids pieces of a puzzle and had them work together to find the whole lesson. And even though that's at a very elementary level, it's actually middle school, but it's, I think it's what works in life, you know, to, to recognize what everybody's bringing to the table and we're going to come together and, and discover so many fascinating things in the world. Mm. So what you, you just articulated helps me so much and hopefully I'm helping a little, but maybe it's that recognition too, that's, that's made such a difference in the classroom. And I hope going forward will make a difference. It also is a difference in the dynamic with the horse. It's like, what are you telling me? And what are you bringing to me? It's like, okay, Hap, we're in this together. Right. You know, we're going we're gonna to heal this together. Because, and the idea of, and I've heard this before too, even of myself riding the saddle, not the horse. Mm -hmm. Because you're not, it's that's what you were saying about just being on top of the horse and mm -hmm. not being in tune with where they're moving and trying to stay balanced with them, which is such an amazing thing that I, I gained an appreciation for before I rode with the saddle. Remember how often I rode Harley with the bareback pad mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and how that so helped you get in tune with him, his movement, such an amazing horse. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> which transfers now to not needing the stirrups as much. I mean, you need them, right? But just to have that feel of where they are on them, where you are with them. Yeah, I love mm. that. Yes, 100%. Yeah, it's powerful. I mean, what you're talking about, the classroom management, and obviously there's some really clear parallels mm -hmm. to working with horses with the leadership concept that we were exploring too. There's so many nice things there because we talk about that kind of servant leadership role, just kind of looking at that, but then thinking about your students' feedback of saying, I didn't want to disappoint you. And I know because I've actually taken your classes, it's mm -hmm. not because you're a dominating teacher, you're inspiring and teach with emotion and passion. Mm -hmm. So you draw that out. What I think that speaks more to is kind of like that cultural conditioning of like, um, oh, what's the right word? Not like coercion at all, but more of just that performative mm -hmm. uh, ranking, you know, kind of hierarchy. hierarchy. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's how our whole society is set up. It's certainly mm -hmm. how capitalism set up. It's how education is set up. It's how business is set up. It's, yeah. it's how everything is set up. So we really see everything through that lens. And in some ways, maybe that's one of the really powerful things that we can learn from horse culture and horse wisdom. The idea that the the concern about disappointment comes from the evaluation piece, right? Yes. Which yes, is the evaluation piece, mm -hmm, which is mm -hmm. something I, I wish that we didn't have to have in academics because it makes life so much easier for me when I just comment on things instead of having to assign points. So one of the things that I've done in my physio class, the intro to physiology, we have labs. If you just show up at the lab, and you do the stuff, then you get the points. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And then when you submit something, I go through it and write on it. And I tell you where it could have been better and where you did. It's so important to tell people where they did well. Yes. Well, if you remember, I write all over things, not because, you know, it's like, oh, bad, bad. I always hated it when somebody said, you know, minus two. Why? Mm-hmm. Why did I miss two points? You know, mm-hmm. but just the idea, where did it come from? But also, it's so refreshing to hear what, why you got the points. You know, this is mm-hmm. fabulous. You've got the right idea and all of that. But to be able to do it without having to assign points and just let people know where to grow and mm-hmm. where they're doing so well, that's just a fabulous thing. I, mm-hmm. I wish we didn't have to be so, you know, put that evaluation which infers judgment, doesn't it? Right. Yeah, 100%. People take that to horsemanship, of course, because we're Mm. soaked in it. It's not a judgment or criticism on any, if you're into showing and doing all the traditional stuff. It it just is an expression of how we are already, you know, in that that water. We're already just, that's what we see because that's what we're in. So we take it to horsemanship. We see it in horse training almost all the competitive discipline has this sort of heavy handed approach and it's all rewards based, the ribbons, the money that's involved, but it's getting so far away from like just horse culture and the horse wisdom. Whereas that collaborative thing that you're talking about, that teamwork effect, that group inquiry thing, that all really seems like pretty cool elements of herd wisdom that we've could all really learn from and and because we do live in the world and we may not be able to be free of that at all times at least we can be free of that when we go to the barn and interact mm-hmm. with our horses and can build that collaborative herd mentality mm-hmm. build that muscle when we are at the barn working with our horses I think that's one of the great things about the barn that I am at and there is collaboration you know everybody just loves yeah. being there but that that is an interesting I'd mentioned to Victoria when I was just walking, right, because of everything that had happened and when I first started out with Harley, right, mm-hmm. and, and we're just walking and I said, gosh, I feel like such a noob. And he said, that's the best place to be, mm-hmm. to be, to always have the eyes of the beginner. It's mm-hmm. such a great place to be. And that made me feel so much better and relaxed. Not mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, you know, you should always know what you're doing and you're, no, just realize that things are fresh and new and that you're going to develop tools to help you integrate the world just like you had to learn what a raised eyebrow was right Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. just have to learn that with every horse it's new and with hap with me it's new for him Mm -hmm. right so Mm -hmm. but that's an okay place to be i i do think that competition although we talked about that we were working towards that with dusty and maybe someday i will do that but it is unfortunate the fads that get drawn into that competition to the detriment of everyone. And that goes to nerving the horse's tails in, mm-hmm. in Western competition now. So they can't ring them and look distressed. Right. They can't communicate. And the people you've talked about who are competitors who don't really know their horses, they just get on them and ride because that's what they do. Mm-hmm. Like a jockey that gets paid to jump on a horse and take off. That there is none of that wonderful collaboration that truly is the holistic approach that you are working towards that is such such an unique perspective of what you bring to the horse world hmm. I think that you know I see a lot of videos for because I look at videos I like to look at <laughs> videos on 
on YouTube of how people are are writing and working, mm-hmm. but that whole idea of of looking at the entire relationship with the horse as an individual and with you is what's so important and it resonates without ev- throughout every element of your life. Mm-hmm. That's where you get the dopamine surge and the the cortisol decrease and the endorphins mm-hmm. coming out mm-hmm. and the encephalins and serotonin, all those good things. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. Which is why we're drawn to horses, I think, initially, right? We're not, I, <clears throat> I don't know anybody who initially, like in their heart of hearts said, I want to learn how to ride a horse so I can win a blue ribbon, <sighs> right? Hmm. I mean, that might be a cherry on top. I think that that gets to the heart of what we're talking about. There's a there's a why element. And I do wonder with your your first horse, Dusty, who it just became very clear you two were not a love match, right? I think I was in my early, early 20s. I was working with a mentor and he was giving a clinic that I was at and he said to this whole group of people who were there to learn, he said, your entire experience with horses is going to be determined by the horse that you end with, the horse that you decide to work with, the horse that you choose. And he said, you have to choose the right horse and horses, choosing the right horse is like choosing the right partner in any relationship. Sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. And that is really important to be able to identify when it's working out and when it's just not. And I think that was a turning point for you deciding it wasn't, it was time to move on and then finding Harley, the next horse and realizing, you know what this, it wasn't me. It just wasn't the right match with Dusty because here I am with this horse Harley and Mm -hmm. we're actually meshing beautifully. It's easy. It's not hard. It's not scary. My sympathetic nervous system isn't like, you know, screaming the whole time. When you said it it was you with Dusty, it wasn't necessarily you. It was the partnership. It just, Mm -hmm. you two didn't have the chemistry Mm -hmm. as like you come into contact with a lot of people or animals where it's just like, we're not, you're not picking up what I'm putting down or vice versa. So very nice to meet you. Let's (laughs) move on. And I think that was so cool that you were brave enough to do that. I think a lot of people kind of stick in bad relationships with horses for longer than they ought to. And, and don't get to realize that actually there are other avenues. There are other partnerships that might work out better and it doesn't have to be hard and scary and all that, all the things. Well, you are a great deal of help in supporting that. Because I was coming to that conclusion and you were saying, you know, this could be the case. I was afraid of Dusty on mm-hmm. on many occasions, mm-hmm. especially after he ran over me. Mm-hmm. 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 So there was, even though he didn't do anything under saddle, he never did anything under saddle that was really frightening. But there were mm-hmm. times when I was pretty nervous. Yeah. But yeah, mm-hmm. that hasn't translated to a little hap 
which is beautiful, which is just further. If I had a hop hypothesis, yes, a hypothesis, I'm starting <laughs> to feel like I've got enough evidence where I could start testing this hypothesis because it <laughs> seems like I'm, you know, heading in the in a direction that makes sense. That, that was, was beautiful. My attempt at me. <laughs> That was beautiful. <laughs> On that note, with um, with lovely sweet Hap, what does your dream ride look like? Oh, you know, my dream ride has changed. We had talked about what my dream ride was in the past, but now my my dream ride in the past was being bareback at dusk. I heard a read a beautiful description of what dusk is, and this is. This is an old uh, Nordic saying that it's, it's the time of day between wolf and dog. Mm, That's what no. dusk is, the transition between, well, dog and wolf, right? Mm. But which is like domestic and wild. It's such a beautiful time to think of, you know, mm -hmm. riding at dusk bareback with, in the moonlight, this, the fading twilight. Now it's, it's, moved from that to just being comfortable riding, just riding in silence and contentment, just out in anywhere, out in the junipers, out anywhere, and just moving quietly through the trees and listening to his hooves and seeing the wildlife, watching the hawks fly and the bunnies run and just being smelling the saddle that's just perfect that would just be perfect <laughs> if it's lovely. twilight that's better right that right. would be but any time would be good any thoughts on the difference between your first dream ride and what your dream ride is now that you shared with us i think the first the first dream ride was more more of a a sensual in the moment type of thing, but less of the incredible contentment hmm. and continuity of what that kind of an experience is that translates to your whole life, that you can just stay calm and focused in everyday life. It doesn't have to be extraordinary circumstances like that first mm -hmm. ride was, that's so hard to replicate. I mean, how can you replicate that? It was amazing. But on the other hand, it's like being taking comfort in the mundane, if you will. Wow. Acknowledging the everyday wonder. Mm. Hmm. Wow, that's deep. <laughs> yeah. That, is that reminds me. Have you ever heard of the Zen Silkscreen series? They represent a seeker's journey to enlightenment. And you know, as many different phases. I, I don't know all the different nine phases, but the, the punchline is they reach enlightenment. And then after enlightenment, it's just the seeker down in the village in the marketplace, mm -hmm. just with open hands, just helping people in the marketplace. <laughs> in other words, the mundane that just, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's where real joy is found. Mm. Real, real joy that that is more permanent than the transient. Um, what is it that that Maslow said about peak experiences? 
Right. Oh, peak experiences, the, you know, it has hierarchy of needs that you reach these peak experiences that are the fulfillment of all of your, your social development or your personal development, but you, you don't have to live for peak experiences because they're everywhere. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. Just existing can give you that, that feeling of and contentment, I guess, is a good way to put it. Mm -hmm. And that, that resonates with people and with horses. Well, that's horses, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and animals and nature. It's like every moment of beingness is peak. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. It's the way it's they so live. Out. Yeah, it's, it's so grounded in the experience of the moment. We're gonna have to do a multi-part. Yeah, Rebecca. we're gonna have Let's to have you back, Rebecca. Oh. I hope that's okay. Oh, you're so kind. If you think I have things oh. I can add, we oh, need to Lord. talk more about the the polyvagal yeah, theory. Yeah, there's so much we, more to we, go there. Now I know some. I'm gonna deepen my questions and some of that stuff next time. And we're gonna talk beforehand. Like that's that's Maybe a whole other niche, podcast. Niche down into yeah. this topic and really go deep with it. I think that'd be fun. Today's more your horse journey. Two things about that. One is I have many lectures, so to speak, on this, if you'd ever want to hear it. It is such a beautiful, beautiful example of evolution, how mm -hmm. our myelinated vagal system evolved from gill arches and fish. Wow. We wow. don't have to breathe underwater, right? So we can use that for something else, which is facial expressions. Isn't that so cool? It is such a beautiful okay. example. Okay, so last couple questions. When it comes to horses, what's someone or something you feel gratitude for? Gosh, probably the most gratitude is to you, you and Josh, and everything that you've done to support me and help me get to where I am. You know, if it hadn't been for you, I don't know if I would have ever gotten back into horses. Mm -hmm. I, or it would have been a very different route to get back in because it was through the workshop and realizing that there was someone I could work with and you, amazing you. And if it hadn't been you, Lord knows I probably would have quit because I tried to take lessons with people before, not since I'd come to Central Oregon, but before, and it was never successful. And then you hear about experiences like Hannah, our good friend Hannah wrote had, where she persisted despite the fact that her instructor was extremely critical and spent most of her time yelling at her. And I've seen those on YouTube, you know, where they're, put your feet down, half halt, scream. What's half halt? I have no idea, mm -hmm. right? Just being screamed at, but you're so kind and gentle and seeing the way you, as you know, I try to be when I grade, you correct what needs to be done, but you tell us when we're doing what's right. And you also model it for us, which is such a benefit that we can see you ride and know what, how to do it, how it should look. And then you help us do it and how to interact with horses in the most non-judgmental way. We are so fortunate to have that. So incredibly grateful for you. That's, I think that's Thank where you. most of my gratitude goes. It's very kind. I feel like now that I'm looking at that question, like it looks like it may be a plan. <laughs> <laughs> like, no. like, um, you know? Well, we're very privileged to even get to, you know, talk about horses and be, have them in our lives. And I and agree. That's, yeah. That's very cool. And, and yeah, I, I know we've, 
I know you feel it. I certainly feel it too. It was one thing when we think about, you were asking what was a formidable thing. Mm. You know, this last year has been tough, but I think the most formidable thing I accomplished, which allowed me to be where I am today is finishing the PhD. Mm. Because if I had not ground through that, I would not have been able to be where I am. I wouldn't be affording a horse. I wouldn't be able to be talking to you. I mean, there's so many things that would not have been possible if I hadn't done that. And it, it was not an easy process because of all the things that were going on, you know, a difficult spouse, having two babies during the process. Mm. Hee-haw, mm. right? I mean, just a lot of things going on that managed to get through it. Exactly. <laughs> heard this a few times from a few different accomplished smart people who are out in the world say they can take things away from you but they can't take your education no mm. no even and, my I remember my father telling me that who has been of course I'm so grateful for him because he was my avenue to horses and so many things even though we did have some issues but one of the things he had no clue what I was doing he totally supported me going to school I mean they paid for my tuition for my undergrad. I worked, but they paid for that. And he said, that's one thing that I have seen in you that you look at the world in an entirely different way. Um, you know, when I look at a tree, I don't just see the tree, I see the xylem and the phloem. Right. You know, when I see, you just see different things when you're educated and no one can ever take that. And you, Victoria, are also an example of persistence and I think you're going to be grateful when you finally finish that master's, but look at everything you have gone through to complete your education, you know, and you as well, Josh, you know, you, you are helping to support and contribute to a pathway that you'll never regret. You'll never regret that. And you're managing somehow. <laughs> Thank you for that. That's huge. It's it, and it means a lot coming from you because I know you get it. So mm -hmm. to look at it as a journey and mm -hmm. just stay in the moment, try to enjoy mm -hmm. it, try to just take it for what it is. And, mm -hmm. and a lot of that perspective comes from being a little bit older and a little bit wiser mm -hmm. as I'm going through these programs, not getting hung up too much on, you know, my performance or, or this yes. or that, which Incidentally, it's, I think a lot of times when you relax, you do better work. Yes, right? yes, you do. Well, so what's one word to describe the kind of horse person you aspire to be? Can you sum it up in one word? Hmm. Present. <gasps> present. So to be present with my horse, to recognize the gift that that experience is because present is is what we have at the moment but it's also to get a present right christmas just happened but i think the gift of being mindful and in the moment to be a present person with the horse that's and in life but especially with the horse perfect mic drop yeah mic drop oh. moment <laughs> <laughs> wow beautiful is there anything else? I don't think that's it. So um, I guess the only thing would be what's on the horizon you, anything that we need to know about ways for people to get in touch with you, mm -hmm. see projects you're working on, talks that you're going to be giving, anything like that. Mm -hmm. The 
the main thing that I'm doing that is that's on the books is that I will be doing a training on gender development for the forest school, the Bend Forest mm -hmm. School, and that's coming up in April. And then also coming up in April, I'm going to be doing a similar presentation interactive piece with the Oregon Association for the Education of Young Children, or OAEYC. And then I also will likely be doing the presentation we were discussing about the levels of stress response. And that likely will be in Madras, mm. right? So I'll probably be doing that in February, I would think, in Madras. And people can always get a hold of me at my email through COCC, which is in the directory for Central Oregon Community College. Other than that, I don't have a big presence. I mean, I'm on Facebook, but not that you'd notice. You know, so that's and I, I so appreciate that. You know, you can do the Instagram, and I love watching your stuff. I think I love face your Facebook. I I jump into Facebook because of that, because of you, but not so much that kind of media. Sure. I do but, Zoom. Mm -hmm. So we'll do, we'll be at the talk in February, probably. Mm -hmm. Oh, to make if you'd like. Happen. Yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. And we'll let people know about that. And we'll also put your contact info in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of an interesting paradox, isn't it? You have so many years of creating presentations and incredible content and ideas, which is really like, the whole Instagram kind of YouTube world. That's what's, mm -hmm. those are the skills that are really used to create that content. Like you could populate a channel with some really powerful presentations, just like being a keynote speaker. Every class mm -hmm. you do is a public speaking presentation. You know, those are all the skills actually in, in the online space. So it's, it's just kind of, kind of interesting as, and I think about how skilled teachers really are at, content production because we've been trying to do that for the first time right. in the online space and realizing like oh it's really hard to speak about an idea that you're working out it's really hard to <laughs> present a presentation using slides and ideas and combining them in a coherent way that is engaging and not boring so, right. <laughs> so really good job skills. you <laughs> yeah, so, so you may not be on instagram but you're probably one of the most prolific content producers we know mm -hmm. <laughs> i do think it would be especially when we talk about the stress and the gendered components that it would be nice to have like little snippets out there to show mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. but my millennials will have to help with that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. perhaps would we'll see yeah we'll that see. would have a powerful <laughs> impact on people too mm -hmm. so yeah, and as we get better at it, we could help too. We're right. still figuring it out, but maybe, maybe soon we can. I think that's oh, one gosh, of that's... missions is to get this stuff figured out so he can get people that he admires and thinks their knowledge needs to be shared. Yeah, he can help true, them actually. do that. Yeah. So we'll we're coming for you, Rebecca. One of these days, <laughs> if, if your millennials don't figure it out for you. <laughs> Well, thank you, Rebecca, for sharing some of your journey. We have so many more things we want to explore with you, both technical and journey related and just spirit related. There's so many, so many things. So I know we just scratched the surface today, but thank you for joining us. 
So they want to acknowledge you for all of your perseverance. You can see it just in your life story you did to get a PhD. We see it in your work with horses. When we've gone back over footage, we've just been like, wow, Rebecca is so heroic. She works so hard. We've seen you in your presentations, both when we were younger in college and more recently, the heart and soul that you bring out in your presentations. I think that you are exemplifying the servant leadership that we're trying to cultivate in our own lives, not only help people like on horse journeys, but also just parenting and with our own horses. So we admire you and we look up to you and we would just really thank you for everything you bring to the world. And we're just really grateful to have you on the journey with us and to have shared this little bit of time on the podcast that we can share with other people too. It was really special. So thank you for all of that. Thank you. Thank you. You're very kind. I'm I'm just grateful to be part of this and I hope it offers some value. Thank you. 